BFF.FM. Best frequencies forever. Friday, y'all. I'm Helena Handbasket, and you're listening to What's the Move. <clears throat> I created the show because I love music and I love history. And over the course of the next few months, I'm going to be dissecting different African American genres of music. You might have seen an infographic floating around the internet called The Evolution of African American Music. It's a timeline of every musical genre created by Black Americans. Portia K. Maltzby created this chart in 1992, and it's been revised a few times but I think it could be updated a bit. 
in due time we'll get into what revisions i'd like to see but first we need to get into history lessons that way we have context to go with our critiques this show is not necessarily about identifying which genres came before the other but rather how all of our genres are interconnected as you'll notice especially early in history many of these artists did gospel records or they were musically trained in the church before creating new sounds this means that there won't be a linear way to tell the story of black music Sacred tradition influences the secular and vice versa. And as you'll find out later, that does happen. Um, it also happens simultaneously. So if anything, this is a story that could be told best by looking at a map. If you want to follow along, I will post my main reference um, on the episode. So if you're listening on the website, I think that it's already up. <laughs> um, and also like shouts out to Bootsy Collins. It was his birthday yesterday. What a legend, man. Like for real. So. Um, last week, I had to cut my segment on Mary Lou Williams short, and if you're my friend, I've been like hollering about it all week. I was super bummed about it, but I realized that, you know, you have to roll with the punches, and since she is the mother of Bebop, and I'm going to get into Bebop, it's okay that her story got cut in half, you know? <laughs> so, let me pick up where I left off. So... Mary Lee Williams becomes the mother, or she is the mother of Bebop. I won't say she becomes the mother of Bebop overnight. Um, but you know, although like the young cats are taking bits and pieces of what she's playing um, into their own pieces of work, it's love and reverence. Mary Lou is in the room with these or when these conversations are being had, and she even commands them at times. Uh, her presence is definitely felt amongst her peers. Um, and these conversations that people were having, these musicians were having in their apartments at the bars, it was about being intentional about the sounds that they were creating. Um, it's very collective and it's really fascinating because I feel like some subgenres don't really have the foresight to do that. And that's okay. Like, what was I just talking about? Like, I had a whole plan for my episode and it didn't go to plan. Like, sometimes things don't need to go to plan. <laughs> uh, so she was teaching the greats about techniques. Um, or they would practice their sounds for her and she would suggest improvements for better sound. Um, and I feel like that kind of rolled into her next venture of music. Um, she hosted this radio show in New York called Mary Lou's Piano Workshop. And this is like, I love this just because like on the radio show, she would teach piano skills to kids and perform compositions. So, um, on Mary Lou's Piano Workshop, she performs this piece of music called the Zodiac Suite. And this is what I wanted to get into last Friday because I like I love it. <laughs> um, Zodiac Suite is a piece of music inspired by uh, Duke Ellington. Um, well, OK, let me let me backtrack. Essentially, it's like an orchestral jazz piece and it was inspired by Duke Ellington's orchestral jazz piece. It's called Black, Brown, Beige. And in short, it was the first jazz orchestral piece ever performed. And it was performed at Carnegie Hall. And it was received really poorly because white people didn't get it. Like what Duke Ellington was doing was he was doing like an ode to blackness. It was a sonic history of like what our ants or my ancestors, because not everyone listening is black, but what my ancestors were doing in Africa um, talks about the capture of my people and them being taken over to the Americas for slavery and essentially it's like this history of point a to point b to point c and essentially where we're where we are now as a black community but mind you this is like the 1940s so that's like where like that kind of uh analysis stops right 
So Mary Lou wanted to do something similar. She wanted to have a jazz orchestral piece. Um, and if you're wondering too, like these are kind of like the inklings of third stream uh, jazz. It's like a mashup of like jazz and like symphony music, like classical music. I'm not gonna get hella too into it because it's more so like something that like white people co-opted or like kind of made popular within there. So that's like not our story to tell. But anyways, <laughs> uh, she wanted to create like an unconventional jazz format. She was uh, fusing elements of jazz with uh, classical music. And so she wrote 12 pieces based on the zodiac signs of her friends and her peers. And I think that is so sweet and innovative. And like, if you know me, I hope you can like still see why Mary Lou Williams is like my girl, because she's also like into astrology, like all the baddies are. And so uh, some of my favorites in this work um, <laughs> are Aries, which is based off of Billie Holiday, Taurus, which is based off of Duke Ellington, and uh, Libra, which is based off of Art Tatum, Dizzy Gillespie, Bud Powell, Thelonious Monk, Charlie Parker, and John Coltrane. And I don't know which one Virgo is based off of, but I'll figure it out at some point. <laughs> I'm gonna start reading her biography. I'm going to get to the bottom of it. But like as an aside, I think it is so scary like that that many famous dudes are Libras. Like I just know they were hell back in the day, like truly. <laughs> but anyways, uh, Zodiac Seat was meant for a concert hall. And so like at some point in time, like 1945-ish, I want to say, a prominent jazz producer asked her to perform for uh, him in a concert hall. And she agreed to do it, but the condition was that she gets to perform Zodiac Suite in a concert hall, and specifically Carnegie Hall. And she did that. She did it in 1946, and she became the first black woman to perform her own compositions at Carnegie Hall. And unfortunately, and like, I'm not gonna lie to you, like a little bit, like unsurprisingly, just given the social political climate, it received like mixed or poor reviews. And it suffered the same syndrome as Duke Ellington's Black, Brown, and Beige. Like, I feel like people just didn't understand how the, the two music forms mesh. But I think it's like a large part being classical music heads, like, and critics, like, they're very snobby. They're very, uh, they're purists when it comes to this art form. Um, but like, you know, what people were saying was that the pieces didn't interrelate. But I also feel like, a lot of white audiences that consume music that's not specifically meant for them um, can mean that the message that they're consuming gets lost in translate, translation or misinterpreted. So I feel like this really wasn't an exception here because um, I listened to the album and like I get it. But I think the thing is, like we were talking about with modernists in 2023, I can see the vision. But when you're in 1946 and you're also like a little bit racist, I don't think you can see the vision. So there's that. So with that being said, like she was really devastated by the reception of her hard work. Like she, if I remember correctly, like she quit Cafe Society for a point in time to work on Zodiac Suite and the production that was going to be at Carnegie Hall. Like she put her own money into it, like her blood, sweat, tears and funds, you know. Um, so she kind of, you know, retreats a little bit. She still goes and does the radio show. But like at this point, you can kind of tell she's starting to crack because like she's not getting her flowers. So she eventually does what most black artists do at this time, and she goes to Europe. Um, the tour was lackluster. It reminded her of Toba, remember the theater owners booking association, AKA tough on black asses. And she just didn't feel inspired. 
And, you know, the clubs that she was at really didn't, they really like made her feel like she was taking a step backwards and that she wasn't really playing at the caliber of clubs that she thought that she like should have. And I like, honestly, I agree, whatever she wants, she gets, right? Um, like when you think about it too, she's been playing music since she was six years old. She's been in the game as long as Stride Piano has been around and people are still playing in her face. Like she's not the one, you know? And I feel like there's something to be said metaphorically for her not vibing with Europe. And I do understand where she's coming from. Like uh, <laughs> there's this tweet about manifesting or practicing spirituality. And they're like, please use any other language than English to manifest because that's just like the colonizer language. And like, honestly, that's tea. Like, I think that there's something very interesting for people going to Europe to find validation as a black artist. It's nuanced. Um, there's layers like I'm not going to get into it, but like it's definitely a topic, you know? So uh, like in London, they wanted to hear ragtime. And like, mind you, this is like the late 40s, early 50s. Nobody wants to hear ragtime. Like there's so many more dynamic things happening, like ragtime for real. <laughs> and like in other countries, like they wanted her to do like straight up like minstrel shows, like shucking and jiving, like makes no sense to me. And so on top of like the shitty like audiences and like expectations of what they wanted from her or whatever, like the working conditions were really shitty. The travel was really hard because this is also still like post-World War II. Like things are still like rubble. People are still like trying to rebuild from like all of the bombings, you know? And honestly, like on some real queen shit, she gets up in the middle of a performance like on stage in France and just leaves. She goes back to New York City and she takes a hiatus from music. She's like, I, it's not worth it. Like, I get it. Like, I really do. And it's really sad because like, I think that that really did break her. Some people say that um, Charlie Parker's death also aided in her like taking that hiatus because he he passed away due to health problems. Like, I think that he had like some type of lung issue, but he was also like a heavy drinker and a heroin user like heavy into it so um she wasn't doing well to say the least you know like she was very close to charlie parker so she started she stopped doing music she literally says that like the music left her and in 1954 she converts to catholicism and um she attends this church called saint francis xavier church um she she prays all the time. She's really devout. And <laughs> I like I love this part because uh, in like 1957 or something like she meets. Uh, oh, my God. I don't know what these dudes are called, like a friar or whatever. Um, like she meets the brother, the pastor, but like not the pastor, the priest dude. And he's like, hey, babe, like, listen, or not. Hey, babe. Hey, sister, sister Mary Lou. Listen, like God literally put you on this planet like on this plane of existence to make music like if you are not practicing music like you are not doing what god put you on this earth to do and that's a disservice to himself and to you like you need to get back out there like we're tagging you back in like jesus christ said that it's up like we're back up like let's make some music right and she does like shouts out because what she does is just like so phenomenal like <laughs> he asks uh, her to to write a mass and she makes it a full album it's called black christ of the andes and it's uh written after martin Deporis. he's like the black saint in peru um this isn't funny but it is but he's the patron saint of the biracials <laughs> like 
I'm sorry. I'm just that's all I'm gonna say. That's all I'm gonna say. Um, but anyways, she like creates a bunch of things, like a bunch of pieces of music for the church. She um there's I can't think of the name of the specific church that she rolls up because she stops going to St. Francis Xavier, but she teaches kids in church like how to play the piano um how to do uh what's the word choral like choir choral arrangements or whatever um and so eventually she creates like the mass like it's called mary lou's mass and she even had alvin ailey um choreograph dance uh moves to the mass and i guess like the haters like they weren't having it they were like well why does she get a mass why does she get a mass and alvin ailey being the real one that he is He's like, okay, so like Beethoven has a mass. All these other white guys have a mass. Why can't Mary Lou have her mass? And I just got to say, period. Why can't she? Because you're scared. That's what it is, to be completely honest. <laughs> so her mass, you know, it ended up reaching the masses, if you will. And it's honestly her most critically acclaimed work. Uh, she performed it on the Dick Cavett show. And I think that there's clips of it on YouTube. Like I've seen it. I just can't remember where I've seen it. But um, Alvin Ailey's dancers are performing in front of her. She has like a like a four piece band in the background and they're really doing it. And um, she does get her flowers like as she gets older, like she she's already been a legend in the New York scene um, because she was with the Jazz Cats, you know, um, and she was one of the people that like one of the jazz people that like stepped back from music to like enrich the community by teaching them like instruments and things like that. And um, there's this album by uh, the jazz artist Vince Guaraldi. He's born and raised in San Francisco. And it's, uh, I can't think of what the name is called right now. But essentially in like 1964, he actually performed a whole uh, mass at um, Grace Cathedral, which is over by the California Hotel. It's one of, I like, that album is fantastic. And so I bring that up because Mary Lou did it first. That's all. You know, and uh, Vince Guaraldi's album is fantastic. It's one of my favorite albums, uh, jazz-wise, and has been for years. But when I found out that Mary Lou was kind of the girly that started incorporating jazz with like Catholic masses, I was I was shocked. You know, very impressed. Um, but you know, unfortunately, our queen, our lady, Mary Lou Williams, she passed away from brain cancer in 1984. But she has been forever memorialized for me. Like she is so important to me. Um, with that being said, I'm going to take a little break and I'm going to break down bebop, cool jazz and hard, hard bop. <laughs> Thanks for being here. I'm so happy you're here. And like, as an aside, like shouts out to all my homies that are really like sharing, uh, this, this radio show. I just, the support, man, like it's really felt, I really do appreciate y'all. And the people that aren't, you know, don't know me in person, like y'all also mean the world to me too, because you're listening to me ramble about music. So I'm going to play Straight No Chaser by Thelonious Monk, and then we're going to get into some other stuff.
wishing I was somewhere else Walking down a strange new street Hearing words that I had never heard From a man I've yet to meet I'm as busy as a seen a cross or a rosebud or robin on the wing but I feel so gay in a melancholy way that it might as well be spring and that's why FM. Best frequencies forever. All right, so like I high key felt Sarah Vaughn when she said that she feels gay in a melancholy type of way. Like, if you also feel that way, just like say, ski because yeah we're gay we're melancholy but anyways uh we're gonna get into some genres we got bebop okay we're gonna start with our girly bebop bebop is a jazz style that evolved during the 1940s directly out of uh the restrictions of swing bands from the 1930s um it also kind of like emerged because of world war ii and the decline of swing bands um I want to say that I talked about it a little bit last week. Just, you know, like all the men that were able to build things were overseas fighting. You know, all the men that were able to play things were overseas fighting. All the men that were able to farm things were overseas fighting. So um, that kind of I won't say that it caused like an economical collapse because like I wasn't there. I don't really know. But um, in the club scene, it did. So clubs are closing. Um, Bands are breaking up. So um, bebop is kind of like an emergence of all of that kind of devastation from World War II. So bebop's like super rapid in tempo and it still has um, the improvisations like most jazz that we've talked about. But unlike swing and big bands, bebop had like a lot less people in the band. Like I feel like you'd be hard pressed to see bebop footage of like Miles Davis or like any of those fools and see more than like six people. Like it's usually what do they call them they call them combos so 
if you remember in swing bands you have like your horns you have um the drums or something else and then you have like the rhythm section so bebop is just the rhythm section and swing if that makes sense so you got your guitar your drums your bass um you know and like they may add like a couple of horns and here and there that's where you get like miles davis's stuff but um <laughs> to me like when i listen to bebop i find that the music is very drum forward like in big band and swing band these genres were like more piano led and remember we talked about how mary lou in andy kirk's band was in a position of power with her role because she was the piano player she just didn't get treated like she was in a position of power um you know upright bass also comes to mind when i hear bebop um this like the style of jazz you know um bebop had like most of the instruments that you do see in um like the swing and stuff like that but for me what i've noticed is that the drums are really what kept the the tempo the fast tempo and um <laughs> some people talk about um bebop predating the 40s because like and hearing bebop combinations in uh swing and i'm just kind of like well duh like if miles davis and fletcher henderson and dizzy gillespie and charles mingus were around getting their chops in swing era why wouldn't there be elements of proto bebop in swing but like i don't know connecting dots <laughs> and uh you know if i remember correctly too like this is what's so crazy to me uh bpms like beats per minute in bebop can go up to like 220 and that's so wild considering that there is no drum machine involved at all like i don't even think drum well i know drum machines were not invented in the 40s like so think about like how badass you gotta be to keep that consistent time by hand for like seven minutes depending on who you playing with so yeah <laughs> um okay what do i want to get into i want to get into uh bebop culture like beatnik culture and like i know if you follow me on instagram i said that like a couple of these art forms are a little pretentious and so this is why i say that it gets pretentious um <laughs> there's this dude norman mailer he's a white guy right he writes this essay of sorts entitled the white negro and i've really never heard of a white person gathering white people like this i mean like i have but like i don't know about in the 1940s because like I feel like there wasn't like academic language or discourse for cultural appropriation yet. So uh, Mailer describes the white Negro as aka hipsters. Like, let me let me say that, you know, that's what he's talking about. He describes them as individuals with a middle class background who attempt to put down their whiteness and adopt what they believe is the carefree, spontaneous, cool lifestyle of Negro hipsters their manner of speaking and language, their use of milder nar narcotics, their appreciation of jazz and the blues, and their supposed <laughs> concern with the good orgasm. And I think that that is like low key, a little bit of shade at like how um, the world sexualizes black people. <laughs> so um, I'm not gonna lie to you, like he kind of ate with that one. He kind of ate. And uh, I just wanna say like black people were the first hipsters and I'm really happy to see like me as a hipster like that we brought that back again in 2009 and we've been going strong ever since like the amount of like black indie rock bands that i found like since the pandemic alone fantastic so like we salute you the original hipsters the original black hipsters of uh the 1940s <laughs> and like also there's like two things i want to get into in regards to the subject and i'll be speaking on it like in future jazz episodes the unit's almost done by the way but 
I don't really know how to quite break it down in this episode, but I want to just like kind of throw this out there because like it is worth talking about and it will be talked about later. I want to talk about what the U.S. was doing during the Cold War, because remember, the Cold War basically starts as soon as um, World War Two ends. Like and the Cold War is called the Cold War because there wasn't like actual combat. It was like a dick waving contest who can advertise this political ideology as the best political ideology it was a race against communism versus democracy um that's why you have the arms race of who's going to get to the moon first who's going to go to space first that's the cold war it's like that's what they talk about it's the ussr aka communism against democracy aka the us um and so i say that to say during the cold war the U.S. started uh, using jazz artists as like cultural ambassadors to show countries how cool democracy was. Um, they went to like any country that was close to the USSR or that had the potential to become a communist state. And um, I know that y'all have seen that photo of Louis Armstrong and his wife in front of the pyramids. That was funded by the CIA or like uh, the FBI. I want to say the CIA. It was funded by one of those fools. And um, it's a little bit more sinister than just you know, it's where they're trying to push democracy instead of communism. It's I'm not going to get into it. Like I said, it's another time, another day. The second thing I want to mention is this white lady. Her name is Panonica de Koenigswater. De Koenigswater? I don't know. Anyways, she was a Rothschild and she loved to dip her toe in black people's businesses. Think Patty Hearst and the Symbionese Liber Liberation Army. It's kind of adjacent. She was like Thelonious Monk's person. I really don't know what to call her yet because I'm still investigating her. Um, and I say I don't know what to call her yet because Thelonious Monk was married with like kids. And um, but the thing about Panonica is that she was constantly getting arrested with him like for like narcotics use. She would pay his bills. She would pay his health bills. She would like get him booked at concerts. And so I want to talk about her because she ends up writing like a biography um, about um her time with her jazz legends. You know what I mean? And so I say those two things to say, this is how I get into cool jazz. And so cool jazz resulted from the desire of musicians, or the desire of the musicians in this day wanting to innovate and provide like an alternative to the complexities of bebop. And I have a word about it, but I'm not going to say too much. I'm just going to get into it. <laughs> um, so like the cool era I gotta say, it starts with Miles Davis. It starts and ends with Miles Davis. He is cool. Like, he is the definition of cool, right? But what cool jazz did was it added some European classical elements, okay? So um, they were using um, the French horn, the oboe, the cello, the fugal horn, the vibraphone, the flute, things that you didn't typically see in jazz. Um, and I'm honestly gonna keep it so short with cool jazz. Because I feel like in my research, I noticed that there are like three or four black artists that really set the groundwork for what cool jazz is. But other than that, like it's a very co-opted uh, genre, co-opted by white people. So I really don't have too much to say about it um, because like cool jazz kind of became like a thing because white people started commercializing jazz again. Most of the artists in cool jazz are white, like I said. Miles Davis, he did The Birth of Cool. And I feel like on some real shit, like that was kind of like... Him being like, yeah, you know what? I've had these melodies in my head for like three, four years. I've been touring extensively. So I really haven't had like the proper studio to like really fulfill that. So you know what? I'm here in Chicago. I'm just going to record these these little ditties. Just one, two, three, get them off, you know? And he did. And that is the album we know as The Birth of Cool. 
And so I felt like, <laughs> um, like the hipsters, like the, the white hipsters, they ate that shit up. Like they took that and ran with it. And I think that that's really where the European influence comes in. Like it's the white version of bebop. If I'm not like, if, if it had to be called anything, <laughs> like if you've seen the movie dream girls, like, you know how Jimmy, he has the Cadillac song and then that barbershop quartet takes it and then turns it into something different. Even though the lyrics are the same. So that's kind of what I think about cool jazz is like no disrespect to the people because uh chat baker like fuck with him i really do and then blossom deary i love blossom deary so you know and i will say too like it's it's a genre that got really big in like huntington beach and in san francisco so i'm just gonna leave that information like right there right there we're gonna get into hard bop though because i feel like hard bop that's the one that is like it sets the tone for a lot of stuff that we're going to be talking about later, I think. Hard bop. Um, it was a part of like the historical period of like that challenged racism in the United States. And I love this time in black music. Like this is like 1954, right? And I know right now I'm talking about jazz, but I'm talking about all black music, everything that I've researched thus far, like as a kid to like now, right? You got the gospel, you have pop coming in, like you have a lot of different black genres, rhythm and blues, and they're starting to mesh ideologically, which I love because previously like white people, like they were just, and when I say white people too, I mean like white supremacy, right? Like if you have a grandma who was marching, like that's super awesome. I'm not talking about her. Um, I'm talking about like the white people that were spitting in people's faces, like while they were just trying to go to school. So like with that being said, that would like racial equality was not a priority for America as a whole for the powers that be. But because black people are off that, like been off it, like we're starting to like talk about this in our art. We're starting to like form groups to boycott things like we're at, like hard bop kind of symbolizes like that change to me. And like, honestly, I feel like the musicians that did hard bop also feel the same way. Like it was a direct reaction to like the European influences that were incorporated in cool jazz. <laughs> like, boom, there it is. Like the bebop stylists, like they sought for like a harder sound. They also like meshed their influences of gospel blues, rhythm and blues. And they created like these harmonic structures that really hit and like really brought it back home that these are African derived rhythmic genres. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to get into like a little bit of hard bop. I'm kind of just mixing up like the songs as we go instead of having like a rigid structure, but I definitely want to talk about, or I definitely want to play this art Blakey song because art Blakey and the jazz messengers, if you have to think about one group of people, like one band, if you had to listen to one band for each genre, I think it would be Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers when we're talking about bebop because he really hit that point home. And if you remember, he was in Mary Lou Williams's band when she left Andy Kirk's back in like 1939. So my man is finally getting, he's finally up at that point where he's doing things, making even more of a name for himself. So we're gonna get into that, okay?
It's the little things that mean so much. Just a smile, a loving word, and such ordinary things that happen every day. Forget me nots in love's bouquet, like the kisses that your lips invite, mm. or your whisper when you say good night. May. Never lose that sentimental touch. It's the little things that mean so much. Little things that mean so much. May you never lose that sentimental touch. It's the little things that mean so much. Hey y'all, I hope you enjoyed that little break. <laughs> I know I did. Um, so that was Along Came Betty. Sorry, I'm out of breath. I was just, you know, <laughs> running around. <laughs> uh, Along Came Betty by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. You have Summertime by Miles Davis. He basically like redid um, the whole opera like in like a jazz style. I'm not explaining that too well. I just, I want you to go do your research. Porgy, 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 Porgy and Bess was, um, is an opera that centers black people. It wasn't written by black people, but so it has certain elements that can be considered problematic considering it was written in the twenties. Um, but Miles Davis does his own rendition of it, like the whole, uh, soundtrack. Um, <laughs> and then lastly, uh, Carmen, Carmen McRae, the little things that mean so much. I love jazz song titles because like, 
you know what you're gonna get with them i think at least like the singing ones and like the lyrics do be hitting i won't even lie to you um <laughs> so um i'm gonna take one little break give me one second community radio all your friends are doing it 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 best frequencies forever Sorry, your girl's still new to this, um, but I will say a third time has been the charm. We are halfway done with the show, but uh, so I'm fingers crossed that nothing bad happens. And I think we're on good time, too. So I'm going to get into a famous photo. You might have seen it. You might not have, but it's called A Great Day in Harlem. <clears throat> so A Great Day in Harlem was taken in 1958 by a photographer named Art Kane. He um, was a freelance photographer and he was taking this photo for Esquire magazine. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm so sorry. <laughs> the picture is really important and significant because it's kind of like a reunion photo. It's like a, a yearbook. I don't I don't have the words to describe it. You just got to look at it. I also have that linked in the description of the episode so you can take a look. Um, <clears throat> so like the street that they took the photo on, I believe it's 125th Street in Harlem. Um, it was like the neighborhood for jazz, basically from like the Harlem Renaissance to like World War II, even predating the Harlem Renaissance. Let me not even play, you know? And some of the musicians lived in the neighborhood still, but most of them lived outside of the city, um, like in Queens and stuff like you should actually look up <clears throat> like the white flight surrounding Louis Armstrong buying his house in Queens. I think he was like one of the first affluent black people to move into that uh, that neighborhood. And a lot of jazz musicians followed suit. And if I'm not mistaken, that home in Queens is currently a museum, too. But yeah, look that up. I'm not going to get too into it. But anyways, um, so. Some of the musicians also li like lived out of state or they were just touring all the time. So it really was like a reunion. Like you're getting to like see all these old friends that you haven't seen in a minute. Um, and like in this photo, you have most of the jazz greats of like that age. You have Willie the Lion Smith, like, you know, our stride daddy. You have Count Basie. You have Mary Lee Williams. Um, you even have the younger generations of jazz like Mingus, you know, and uh, Monk and or Thelonious Monk. I don't know that man. I shouldn't be calling him Monk, but <laughs> like you have just generations of it, like of jazz in one photo and Lester Young's in that photo. And unfortunately, <clears throat> he did die the following year and he's eulogized in Charles Mingus's album that we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, and there's more than one photo too. Um, some of the musicians brought their cameras to the session just because, you know, people do that. And with a crowd this big of old friends and like black folks specifically, you know that this photo took all day to get done. I don't know if I mentioned it, but it was 57 jazz artists. And these are people that haven't seen each other in a long time. Some that got like a little beef or whatever, like you owe me $10. Like, you know, so there was like, a, it was a key. It was a little key. Um, bunch of big heads, talented fools. Like it was a real key. Um, and for me, like, this portrait is really significant to me and like other people that like enjoy jazz and just black history because like it really is a roster, almost a comprehensive roster of who was creating the genre. You have a good chunk of the architects of jazz in this photo. Like 
you got to remember this photo came out in 1958 if you want to say that the inception of jazz started with stride piano in like 1917 that means that if jazz was a person it would be in its late 40s like i don't know it's just when you look at it you get to see how many iterations of the black experience have touched this genre but it's like in one photo like that's really tight and when you look at this photo you see that there are like these little kids sitting down and that just kind of happened uh art kane talks about how frustrating it was to take the photo because all of the chaos like the cops shut down the block for the photo to be taken and also i should mention this photo was taken in like the middle of august in harlem so you know it was hot as fuck and sorry family if you if you're listening but like if you've been to new york like i think that it warrants the f word i'm just saying i'm just saying um <laughs> so count basie because you know he's a little bit older and it's hot as hell see hot as hell um he was getting tired so he sat on the curb and like the little kids were the little kids that like lived in the neighborhood and um they had already been watching watching the commotion or like playing off to the side and you know little kids too like they're they're so adorable so sweet like sometimes they won't tell you that like they're interested in something and just like will ask questions they'll just kind of like sit next to you or like they'll, they'll stare at you for a little bit and then like slowly but slowly like kind of inch over and like come talk to you or like oh yeah like blah, blah 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 like you know so that's no exception they like they did the same thing with these with these guys you know like uh i was reading something they were saying that like one of the kids <laughs> like took count basie's hat off of his head and like he had to like chase the kid for it like just like i don't know that just sounds so fantastic it just reminds me of like all the action and like a renaissance painting um and i'll link a documentary about this photo in the liner notes sorry one second need some water <laughs> um art blakey is in it like a lot of the jazz like a lot of the people in the photo are also in the documentary i think the documentary was taken in like early 90s late 80s <laughs> but art blakey's in it and he's talking cash shit and i think it is so funny like i could just listen to older people talk about like the the like the olden days like for forever like they have the funniest stories and um if you want to go further the child photo um I'm saying child photo because like this is a photo that happened subsequently. Um, it was taken by Gordon Parks in 1995 and essentially like he photographed all of the remaining jazz legends in that same location. But like I know you know what two and two makes. It makes four. And that means that like by 1995 most of these fools were not around. Like it's actually kind of sad to look at because I swear like out of 57 people that were in the original photo, I think there's only like five in the 1995 version. But then um, on a lighter note, I had the pleasure of seeing one of the other child photos in the Seattle Museum of Pop Culture a couple years ago. Um, so Gordon Parks at it again. He recreates A Great Day in Harlem with a bunch of rap legends in 1998. And this shit is so like... Seeing it in person was, I cried. It was, it was really tight. It was really tight. I'm getting like, <laughs> you know, emotional now because I love music. But <laughs> at the museum, they also had like the documentary about the photo. But let me just break it down. A Great Day in Harlem was almost 200 hip hop artists um, recreating this photo for a spread in Double XL magazine back when it was like a good source for rap music. <laughs> um, and if you want to know who was in it, a few of them, DMX, Slick Rick, Common, Busta Rhymes, 
Shaheem was in it. And if you know about Shaheem, Shaheem was like Bow Wow before Bow Wow, but like with like real bars that he created himself, not manufactured by Jermaine Dupree. <laughs> Sorry, I'm taking shots. My bad, my bad. Um, <laughs> but you know who else is there? Hieroglyphics, you know, our Oakland legends. They were there in that photo. And also E-40 was in that photo too. Another Oakland legend, Bay Area. Like we definitely represented. And I was uh, listening to the editor of XXL at the time, who was a woman, a black woman, talking about trying to set this up. And she talks about how a lot of the uh, rap artists that were in the photo were a lot of like East Coast, Southern cats, blah, blah, blah. But they thought that it was, it showed, they had like a lot of respect for E-40 and the fact that he showed up like a part of like, as like a delegate for the Bay Area. So I thought that was really cool. And um, like I said, I think that that is still in the Museum of Pop Art in Seattle. So if you ever like have the time or if you're in Seattle, like go, go see it. Like I also got to see um, some photos of like a lot of uh, female rap legends, like back in the early days. They also had a notorious B.I.G. suit that he wore in that album cover. And it's fucking terrifying. I'm sorry, bro. Like he was like huge, not like in terms of fat, but he was also tall. Like looking at that suit in like a like a, a fake mannequin was like looking at like a brick wall. Like it was terrifying. Uh, <laughs> but that aside though, that aside though, uh, <laughs> I just want to say like how much I love black people and um, <laughs> just like that photo is super significant. And I also feel like, you know how you watch like those shows and like it ends, like the season ends on like a really high note. And then the next like first episode of the following season, second episode, you're like, oh shit, like, damn. I wish we were back in season two because everyone was having a good time. I'm not gonna say that people weren't having a good time, but I'm gonna get into why 1959 was like such a significant year for Jeff, okay? Like I wanna highlight it because like there, for a couple of different reasons, like, not just that it was a significant year for jazz, but it was a significant year for like a lot of things. You know what I mean? But um, I feel like with jazz, we were starting to get more offshoots, like a lot more subgenres off of what was already established. See, and that's really interesting because like it was happening because of the culture around the people shifting. Like you have to remember, we're like five years into the civil rights movement. Um, Ruby Bridges, who is literally still alive and kicking and like not like she's like mentally stable and all of that, like she is an able-bodied person. She was one of the first black kids to be integrated into white schools. Um, and she was like somewhere between the ages of like six and eight years old. Like she was a literal child uh, being faced with this task. <laughs> and um, this is in 1954, okay? This is Brown versus Board of Education, if you don't know. Um, and then in 1955, I'm sorry, I might get like genuinely emotional about this. Emmett Till was murdered in 1955. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, at the age of 14. And it's heavy. If you don't know about it, look that up for real. Um, <laughs> one second. All right, I'm good. Um, <laughs> it's heavy. It's heavy. Um, you also have the Little Rock Nine and you have the Montgomery bus boycott. And the Montgomery bus boycotts are, is really significant too, because um, that's like one of the longest running boycotts in American history, if I'm not mistaken. Like, I think it lasted for like 18 months, like a year and a half, like no bullshit. 
maybe a little bit less than 18 months, but I know that the boycott lasted at least 13 months. Like it was over a year. And um, honestly, like if you want to talk about from just 1954 to 1959 and what was happening to black people in American history and honestly, like the Latino people too, like let's talk about Cesar Chavez. Like they're like civil rights was really kicking up, man. Like I'm so serious, but um, <laughs> the list goes on. But in plain, like black people were not having the bullshit anymore. Like after World War Two, like and also, I don't know if you know, but like after World War Two, you have the Cold War, but then you also the Korean War happened, too. That was I think that was like 1949 to like 1953 or like 1950 to like 1954. Either way, it was like kind of like a little short stint, but like black folks were also fighting in that war, too. And it was really starting to sink in that like America is like steady playing in our faces, like in the craziest way imaginable. Like we had more education to like really articulate that we had more allies across the across the globe because like they're like diaspora is real. You know, when you have and like, you know, when you have people that don't feel like they're being valued in America, traveling to other places around the world, we get allies, you know. And on top of that, too, I feel like politically we had more allyship in each other, too. And I feel like that could be largely in part due to the large migration, too. Like, I think that, you know, a lot of people are used to being in their smaller towns and there is sense of community in smaller towns. But when you're able to spread out because of whatever reason and you end up meeting more people that look like you, that are like minded or that have the sh share the same values, sometimes you're able to take that back home and nurture that even further. Or like, you know, break off what you know about your experiences to, you know, New York City and create a whole new uh, political movement, a whole new culture. So <laughs> musically, though, let's pop into 1959. I'm gonna kick it off with a couple of albums. I'm really not going to get into the roster of what was released in, tonight, in 1959 because there's so much. But uh, I'm going to talk about Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. Okay. Miles Davis's philosophy when it came to recording and even performing, in my opinion, what I've read at least, is uh, that the first, the, oh God, <laughs> the first thought is the best thought. <laughs> and uh, with that being said, Kind of Blue was uh, recorded in two album sessions. I know that the rumor is that it was recorded in one day, but it, that's not true. It's simply not true. Um, you can literally look it up. It was recorded in two different sessions, like less than a month apart, but almost a month apart in the same studio, if I'm not mistaken, but two different times. Um, and this album, it definitely like shifted something in the culture. I feel like as it does with like, as Miles Davis does with most of his works, like I would like, I really hate to be that girl to like put someone on like a pedestal, but Miles Davis's work is consistently like strong. It's strong. It's consistent. And honestly, I'd say the same about Stevie Wonder. I know people have beef with like some of his later albums, like um, that plant album, uh, The Secret Life of Plants. But all that shit's fire. Like, don't even talk to me about it. And so Miles Davis consistent. And uh, with that being said, this album created like or helped bring into the forefront like another genre called modal jazz and I'm not quite sure how to describe modal jazz but it's like a lot of repeating of the same sounds and different tones and notes and um John Coltrane is like the father of it like one of my favorite songs of all time 
is my favorite things, you know, uh, from The Sound of Music, but John Coltrane's version because it's 19 minutes. And that's the perfect example of modal jazz. So just listen to that if you're confused. Um, but anyways, see, I'm getting on my tangents. <laughs> uh, Miles Davis, like I said, he said the first thought is the best thought. You know what he did for all of the band members that helped record that album? He just gave them sketches of scales and melody lines. Um, and he was like, hey, use this to improvise. Like, I know you got it. And if you're wondering how you could have such faith in a band like that, I'm going to let you know who's on the roster. You got Bill Evans, who ended up replacing Wynton Kelly on this album. Wynton Kelly does make an appearance on two tracks on this album. So he's there, too. You have Paul Chambers. You have Jimmy Cobbs. You have uh, Cannonball Adderley. And then last but not least, like on top of Miles Davis, you have John Coltrane. He's in that bitch. Like, don't get it twisted. Like, John Coltrane is also in there. And it makes sense why modal jazz is an element in this album. So, like I said, actually, no. I was going to say, you don't hear me say this a lot about albums, but you're probably going to hear me say this on the radio, like on this show, because like this is, we're talking about music, like y'all are asking me, you know? (laughs) But like, Kind of Blue is genuinely flawless like i could listen to that front to back like eight times like just cleaning my house and like not even realize that it's looping like it's it's perfect um (laughs) so uh with that being said i'm going to play so what for you and it's the first track on that album and um i want you to imagine that miles davis's voice is his trumpet and i want to know if you hear him speaking and i want to know if like you feel what his trumpet has to say, okay?
want to be your BFF. BFF.FM, best frequencies forever. BFF.FM, best frequencies Streaming with my besties. Hey, y'all. I hope you enjoyed that because I did. I won't even lie to you. I was twerking to the bass like that shit hits. I don't care. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that was so what that was um, the opening track to Kind of Blue. And I want to know if it sounds familiar to you because the first time I heard it, it sounded familiar to me. And also just like it got me so geeked because this is why I love music. So um, my parents used to play like a couple of like the same albums all the time when we would like be cleaning or whatever. If it's like a summer day, dad's working in the garage. And one of them was Erica Badu's live album for her album Baduism. And the very first song is Rimshot, right? But it's a live album. So she has a full band, like lots of instruments and they do a play on the intro of So What? And just the, the layers, because it's the first song in, in her uh, live album. It's the first song in his album. It's da-da, da-da, like that. Like, she does it. And I just, I love that. I fucking love that. I really do. Um, <laughs> so uh, the next album I'm going to get into <clears throat> is... Uh, one of my favorites, like, and always has been, like, even when I was a little shithead teenager, like, I listened to jazz. I did, but, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm a Charles Mingus girly. Like, I don't think that artists need to be compared in certain scenarios, so I'm not going to sit here and put him against Miles Davis in, like, a musical way, but I love his music deeply. Like, I love Charles Mingus. He's, like, I love him. So I'm going to be talking about Mingus Autumn. Okay, that was also uh, released in 1959. And just so you know a little bit about Charles Mingus, he liked improv and he was a teacher to younger musicians. Like they called his band, if you were lucky enough to be in it, they called it school. <laughs> like that was where you were really put through your paces as um, a musician, right? He also held workshops for uh, kids in the neighborhood and like other aspiring musicians in the area or whatever the case may be to get together and just like be better at like playing and one of his philosophies like is that there is no past there is no present there is no future and that's powerful to think about in terms of music and I feel like that also ties into his improv style um, and then like another thing about him too is he always wanted to play the cello growing up and so for whatever reason he wasn't able to and I think it had something to do with the idea that cellos are for classical music you're playing jazz there's no way to incorporate the two so he was always thinking about how you can do things in terms of uh, cross genres, like cross genres together and how things can be like influenced by other things um, instrumentally. You know what I mean? Um, and that man, he was always working. Mind you, Mingus Aum, like that was his fourth album released in 1959. Right. And if you're wondering how it's because he and his wife and Max Roach, they had a record label together and Mingo, Mingo, Mingo. <laughs> <laughs> and Charles Mingus was like a free agent of sorts because he was able to record with all these different major record labels. And I really don't know the dynamics of that in the 50s at the time, but I'm assuming that like you could do that. I don't know. <laughs> but Mingus Aum 
it was highly improvised but like that's what's really cool about it to me because it's improvised but the little layers that you have to it have elements of other black genres um and it it happens in like a jazzy way so you can really like if you listen to it you can hear it like better get in your soul that's the first song in the album it's literally just like gospel swing blues and jazz all in one and if you haven't heard it before like that's not the best description <laughs> but if you know these genres like these traditions then you know what i'm talking about it's really lively and like an amazing way to start an album and it really celebrates blackness too and i feel like because of charles mingus's heritage because he wasn't just black like he genuinely had like chinese heritage and like all these different mixes it's interesting you should read about it but anyways he wasn't always afforded blackness but he hardly ever was afforded whiteness either like i don't think that he was considered like anyways it's nuanced i'm not gonna hella get into it <laughs> but even in spite of that he was still like an advocate for himself and other black people and there's a song on the album called uh fables of fabus about um an arkansas governor who was on like truly the wrong side of history um, the original version of the song, which I'm not gonna play because the, the song originally is nine minutes long, but also I haven't been able to find a version on streaming that has the lyrics. But um, the original song had lyrics and Columbia Records like would not let Mingus say some of the words due to them being too politically charged. And um, I know there's a recording of it on YouTube because I've heard it, but... Um, I'm just gonna read the lyrics. Like I said, the song's like nine minutes long. And I want you to figure out what they had a problem with because I'm a little, I'm, I'm not confused, but I'm confused, you know? And it goes, Oh Lord, don't let them shoot us. Oh Lord, don't let them stab us. Oh Lord, no more swastikas. Oh Lord, no more Ku Klux Klan. Name me someone who's ridiculous, Danny. Governor Fabus. Why is he so sick and ridiculous? He won't permit integrated schools. Then he's a fool. Boo. Nazi fascist supremacist. Boo. Ku Klux Klan with your Jim Crow plan. Name me a handful that's ridiculous, Danny Richmond. Fabus. Rockefeller. Eisenhower. Why are they so sick and ridiculous? 2468. They brainwash and teach you to hate. H-E-L-L-O hello like go off like i'm so sorry could you imagine hearing that in 1959 like on a record because if i'm not mistaken mingus would do the lyrics live like he was never afraid of that and you know what going back to the cold war like this is the type of stuff that would get you put in like a blacklist situation like i'm sure there's a file sitting in the dusty like basement of the cia office on charles mingus that is like twice the size of war and peace like do you know what i mean like this is the type of stuff like just for singing a song will get you killed and it's really crazy too because america is still on that hype today and i mean it's really the world because palestinians they've been getting wiped away in their own country and the settler state is still on twitter over here making jokes about it they're over here paying influencers to anyways but you know what a lot of people are turning the other cheek when it's really not what it is and I digress, okay, I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional again, but <laughs> this track is funny to me because like, I feel like he's not even saying anything bad. Like, 
did they have an issue with the Nazi fascist part or did they have an issue with the Ku Klux Klan part? Like that's what it has to be, right? <laughs> uh, but it's also funny to me too because when you hear the song, because I know you're going to listen to it, um, it reminds me of the theme music for Uncle Ruckus and the Boondocks. And some people say that Aaron Magruder was inspired by the Jabba the Hutt's theme in Star Wars. I've never heard it, but respectfully, like I think it's the Boondocks. Or not that I think it's the Boondocks. I I know it's the Boondocks. But I think since it's the Boondocks, I would feel like it would be a play on a political call out from a jazz legend instead of like a Star Wars movie. But that's just me. <laughs> and uh, this leads me into something that like kind of clicks for me in terms of jazz music and resistance. And that is Ornette Coleman and his album, The Shape of Jazz to Come. And uh, The Shape of Jazz to Come was Coleman's second album in 1959. So he did like, I think, one more album in 1959. Either way, like these cats, they like to record a lot of stuff like Mingus. I think in a 10 year span, he made like 75 albums or like EPs, all that. Like he was just constantly recording. But anyways, <laughs> um, it was released in 1959, The Shape of Jazz to Come. And uh, these guys are based in L.A. So like I said, think about cool jazz and the fact that like cool jazz is happening. Huntington Beach, you know, San Francisco, although it did have a lot of black artists. I like to think of San Francisco as like, yes, jazz, but like rhythm and blues as well. Like really that nitty gritty stuff like, you know, so um, <laughs> in Coleman's band, you had uh, Don Cherry and Billy Higgins, who both grew up in L.A. And Cherry started his life in Oklahoma City and his family actually owned a club during like the ragtime kind of era but they ended up moving to la during the great migration like a lot of our families right um but yeah they released this album in 1959 and it really caused a stir in the jazz scene it wasn't a, a breakout hit like that like with wider audiences but it definitely got people talking and like i kind of <laughs> i feel bad for my reaction because this is exactly what happened when it came out like when i first listened to this album I was pissed that I was listening to it like it's so noisy and chaotic and I was just like wow what is going on like I remember I was like cleaning my house I was just like laughing because I was just like what the hell am I listening to and it's like it's funny too because like I enjoy Sun Ra and like some of his stuff goes into like the free jazz territory right so I'd like that's why it was funny but then like I was kind of reading about how Ornette Coleman was like using his instrument like he seems like an, an un, really unconventional guy, like out there, out there kind of in the same way like Sun Ra and like Pharaoh Sanders are out there, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> and also like his saxophone was plastic, which is hella weird to think about because like I've never heard of like a plastic saxophone that isn't for like a little kid, you know. But yeah, like I said, I thought about like what Cool Jazz was doing at the time, right? It's starting to be like mostly a bunch of white guys and I really can't speak to the 1950s California but I know in present day Bay Area there's a lot of people who want the black aesthetic, black aesthetic and they don't really get ostracized in the way that actual black people do for something that like we created so like I feel like I don't know again two and two makes four sometimes and like history does repeat itself so like with Coleman's playing style though it was really like unusual and innovative like in a sea of cool jazzers and a large city expecting, oops, in a large city, like experiencing like a huge and growing black population and Latino population, like the white flight is like a consequence. So like, I feel like all of that kind of swirling around, like, of course, Coleman would have something to say, even if he's not using lyrics yet. But like, again, like I said, with Miles Davis, think about like him using 
his instrument is his voice. Like, I want to have you listen to this one song and I hope you hear what I hear. Like, it's like a little crazy. <laughs> uh, but um, the more I listen to a few songs, the more I realize that it like it kind of clicked for me. Um, and again, it's kind of crazy, but this shit is proto punk. And I'm standing 10 toes down on it. Like, it's a hot take, but just, like, listen to it and tell me that, like, I'm not dreaming because, like, I hear it. Um, <laughs> but before I get into it, though, I want to say that, like, the band ended up doing a residency that, like, lasted two months in New York City. It originally was supposed to be two weeks, but people just, like, wanted to hear this album because it was, like, so controversial. And I won't say it was totally because of like the politics around it but just because it was like a whole new thing like it really is kind of the start of like the free jazz and avant-garde like it even pissed off mingus at one point like he was like i'd be surprised if they could play it two nights in a row which is like okay like someone a little like a little jealous a little uh, afraid like i don't know but either way like it was sensational like people either loved it they hated it they had a lot to say about it so i'm gonna play it
Okay, did you hear it? Like, I don't know. It's so funky. I'm so into it. <laughs> like, okay, but you know what, though? I was like, the more I listen to that song, the more I enjoy it. But then I was thinking, maybe this is like Kodo Mappa. Like, maybe this is like, you know, because, anyways, okay, sorry. I'm getting into my tangent, man, I swear, but that or that Coleman. Oh, shoot. Hold on, let me turn on the levels. There we go. <laughs> that or Nat Coleman, man, like he was cooking. He was onto something. He was definitely onto something. <laughs> and so, okay, last album I want to talk about. Um, I won't say that this is like a breakout, super significant in the way that these others are, because I think that her first album is more significant than this one. But this is the album that caught my eye. So I wanted to talk about. Uh, Abby Lincoln just a little bit and her album Abby is Blue um, so I played one of her songs at the top of uh, the show and it's called <laughs> Afro Blue and it's actually a jazz standard uh, that was written the same year by an Afro-Cubano jazz player I might actually get into him like in our international jazz episode too like got a lot to fit in that one but <laughs> So like that, I heard that song and I was just like, what is this? And it's an instrumental, but then um, a man named Mario Brown Jr. wrote lyrics for it. And he was actually, Mario Brown Jr. is a frequent collaborator with Abby Lincoln and Max Roach. And we'll get into that in a second. But the reason why like her voice is just like so like nice and like to me is because she has the same cadence as like Billie Holiday and like as I learned more about her like obviously that's one of her biggest influences and like why wouldn't it be right <laughs> so she started singing as a nightclub singer and was very much in that realm where she was set to be the next marketable marketable black singing sensation like you remember last week we chatted about uh like the Hollywood dynamics and the standards set for black women in the industry um in order to make them be successful in that industry um, she talks about that. She <laughs> looks back early in, like on her career and she like understands like she talks about understanding that like the industry is just going to sexualize you and that's like the marketability and like yes that happens to white women but like again in racist times like it's so much more heavy and deeper on like the spectrum because like that's kind of all that we're seen as to some people right. So, um, but with that being said, though, she still navigates it, right? She um, is acting in films. Like, she has a film with Jane, Jane Mansfield, you know, um, Mariska Hargitay's mom who passed away, the Playboy Bunny. Um, she's a singer in a nightclub. I think I already said that. Um, but then she also, like, has albums coming out, but they're more so, like, pop albums, you know? But I say that to say she has, like, a career going. And so I forget how she meets Max Roach. You know, I was talking to you about him earlier. He uh, has that record label with Charles Mingus. Um, I forget how she meets him. But at, this, at the time, though, they start talking about, like, music and the direction. And they end up making music together. And they end up getting married, too. But like I said, she had already had, like, this career before him. And she kind of dropped that career to collaborate and make music with him. And um, like I said, she's very much influenced by Billie Holiday and uh, women like Sarah Vaughn, who I played earlier as well. But she also recognizes that like the lyrics are very like masochistic and very like pick me vibes. 
And I won't say that Billy and Sarah didn't write lyrics, but they sang mostly other people's songs. And those are men's songs. And I feel like, how can men write from the perspective of a black woman when they simply aren't black women, right? And so she also has this thought. And she starts doing uh, songwriting. Um, and her songwriting like kind of shifts my ideas of what it means to be a jazz singer, especially in that age. Like she definitely did standards. Like Abby is Blue, that standard or that album that I'm mentioning, it has a lot of uh, jazz standards on it. But this is, I want to say the, no, it's not. I'm not going to say that. It's not the first album that she uh, <laughs> songwrites on. But like she has, like she's songwriting or she's writing songs on this album as well. And I feel like that's not like, it's kind of unheard of, like lyrically. Like, not too many people get to do that, and like that also has to do with misogyny, right? Um, <laughs> but um, and I don't mean to negate what Billy and like those women before uh, Abby, like what they did. But the creator of Strange Fruit, I don't know if you know, it's like a poem by a Russian Jewish person who is like for the cause, but like that's not um, an original work from Billy Holiday. And so I'm actually gonna play the song, a song by Abby Lincoln, and it's called I Got Thunder and It Rings. And um, yeah, she wrote this one. So I think that it's important to play. So we're gonna play it. Some folks talk about my power. Some folks say I'm wild and strong, others say my style of living makes a man go wrong. I'm a woman hard to handle. If you need to handle things, better run. When I start coming, I got thunder and it rings. Cause love is an emotion. It'll move you to do things. about the love they're feeling talk about the love they need others say that love is waiting in the meantime watch my speed i got love for climbing mountains love for sailing overseas i got love there is no stopping love for sending like the breeze It'll move you to do things, do things, do things. Love is an emotion. It'll move you to do things. I got thunder and it
life on earth is over And the struggle here is won I will find a new dimension In the rising sun In the place that is forever I will spread my wings and fly If you see a streak of lightning I'll be passing by Cause love is an emotion It'll move you to do Wasn't that song fantastic? Like, like I'm still researching Abby Lincoln um, because I know that she does have significance in the late 60s, early 70s, like in those musical and political movements. So I'm going to get into her like when we get into like our soul and funk sessions. But like, oh, man, <laughs> that one, that one hits. That's like listening to Megan The Stallion low key. Like, I think I'm going to play that and then Megan The Stallion back to back when I'm having a shitty ass day. Um, <laughs> she's a Leo, by the way. Abby Lincoln is a Leo, by the way. And um, I'm going to read you what she says about this song. She was talking to Terry Gross at NPR. And uh, she says this about, um, <laughs> I got thunder and it rings. Well, there's a complaint about the woman, about the female, you know, especially black women. I don't know. I guess it's the same thing for all the women. But if you express yourself, they say you talk too much. And if you don't know how to be feminine and a drag, oh my gosh, and you don't know how to be feminine, then you're a drag, you know? So I said, listen, this is all true. So run, because I'm not changing anything. Everything that you say I am, I am. So don't come around here because love is an emotion that will move you to do things, to say things and to be things, whether it pleases anybody or not. Sorry that was so difficult to read. I was reading a transcript. <laughs> um, but like I said, I'm still researching her. So I think we're going to hear about her more. But I think that this is like a fantastic place to stop with our journey, like 1959. Um, it really reminds me of like 2016 in terms of like cultural and political impact. Like if we want to talk about the music that was released, you have a seat at the table that was culture shifting and flawless. You have blonde and uh, what was Frank Ocean's other album? Endless, Blonde and Endless came out. You have Anti by Rihanna. Let's not forget like our girl Esperanza Spalding released Emily's De-Evolution. And that album makes me cry just thinking about it because it's so good. You have Lemonade and then you have Death Grips, their last album, right? And then, bro, like K Trinata released 99.9 .9 in 2016. And the girls still play that in the club, okay? And then you also have Gloss. 
they released Trans Day of Revenge. That culture shifting, like, and then also like, I, you know, I'm not gonna say it. Like, I'm going down a whole list because like 2016 had like some of the best music to come out in a minute, right? But like, at the same time though, like, it was fucking tumultuous to be a black person in 1959. And if you remember correctly, like. In 2016, they were trying to make a shoes between two evils to uphold political offices, among other things. Like Alton, Alton Sterling was killed. Philando Castell was killed. They were both killed by the police. And like in 2016, too, it was like at the time, I will say at the time, it was considered the most fatal year for trans individuals. Like we lost so many of our brothers and sisters, Raylan Thomas, Demarcus Stansberry, like a lot of people I want to bring up again, just in case you forgot, you know, because... The situation is not improving. Um, trans people are still being murdered. Black people are still being murdered. Uh, genocide is actively happening. <laughs> so um, on top of that too, like a lot of friends passed away. A lot of musicians passed away. You have David Bowie, you have Prince. Um, the list really does go on. So I feel like 2016 is very reminiscent of 1959. I feel like the artists had a lot to say. The people who are not artists have had a lot to say. And um, I don't know if things changed for the better, but things have definitely shifted, right? Um, so that's why I think that it's definitely reminiscent of 1959 because I'm going to show you what happens or I'm going to tell you what happens after 1959 and 1960, like what we're doing musically with free jazz and avant-garde jazz. And then also just like the political climate. Like I said, I do want to talk about the U.S. sponsored trips for jazz enrichment, <laughs> because that's very interesting to me. Um, but before we go, I'm gonna play one last song for us. It's called Lonesome Lover by Max Roach and Abby Lincoln does the lyrics for it. So Oh 